One Week Season. OWS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes, Hilo back for the 10th installment of our Best Ball Theory podcast, where we dive into the nitty gritty, the theory, the higher level stuff with the best ball across the best ball landscape. Again, we're going to jump right into it this week. I'm going to introduce our guest. He is a man that you have seen around the industry for four or five years now. Extremely valuable additions to that industry. He has sunken his claws into everything from NFTs to best ball to all fantasy across the industry, as well as crypto. If you didn't know him, you probably started hearing from him two years ago when he shipped the best ball mania one on underdog. And that is none other than Justin Herzig. How are we doing, man? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Excited to talk to the OWS fam and uh, chat with you as well. Yeah, man. Again, thanks for coming on, dude. I know we've uh, we've crossed paths multiple times across you know around the industry, but getting uh, just getting to sit down and jam about some best ball that's a, a first for us. So definitely appreciative of you uh, joining us today. No, happy to do so. And I like the interesting take that you uh, you have a lot in this, where it's far more about the kind of the theoretical, the strategy, thinking of you know asking the right questions, um, you know, the answers that we don't actually have, but it's the discussions that help us get closer to answering them. Yeah, and that uh, that's that's a great point to bring up, and I think it is going to lead directly into the first thing that I wanted to talk about, and that's kind of this the landscape of best ball and how it has one blown up over the past you know about year and a half, and two kind of the future or what we're thinking about uh, where best ball is going to be taking us. You know, we have seen the major contests on underdog jump from you know a, a four million to five million now to a ten million dollar prize pool. Uh, and that's insane growth over just a, a short three-year period. So what are you feeling about you know, the landscape of best ball, where we're at now, and kind of where we're going to in the future? Yeah, no, it's been fantastic to see. I mean, even if you just try to, you know, the big numbers are always such large numbers, it's hard to really conceptualize what that means. But just look at what the finals had to be for the BBM two years ago and what it is now. Like when I was in it, there were literally 50 of us total in that final group. Now there's 469 in the finals and that's for that final group. And so that means the tournament is almost 10 X as large uh, from a, you know, from a pool wise of actual participants. It's crazy. The amount of growth we've seen in such a short period of time. And I don't think it's all that surprising because the best ball is just so much fun. Like so much of the fantasy football. And the reason why a lot of us got into it was because we enjoyed playing in that, you know, that 10 man, 12 man league with our, high school, college friends. And then a lot of us got into the kind of the DFS side because we liked the grind. We like trying to find that edge. But so much of the DFS has also become kind of just hyper competitive. And uh, I think best ball, it puts that fun back in fantasy. Yeah. And it's that awesome. The draw of it appeals to, you know, players across the spectrum of talent and, and really what they're trying to do. You know, you could get your your standard ESPN leaguer who is like, oh man, I can go draft. I have a hundred dollars to spend. I can go draft four BBMs and, you know, have a shot at $2 million. Like that, that is otherworldly. And then also all the way to the, the season grinders where, you know, we're maxing every tournament on every site every year. 
the the appeal is just such a broad spectrum, and I think that's why we've seen such a an, an, an explosion of interest across the industry, and it's it's awesome to see. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. And uh, where does it lead us from here? Um, I mean, I think sites like Underdog, I think some of the sites that have had success are just going to continue to uh, grow, innovate, build these out. Um, I put actually a Twitter thread the other day. I was trying to think of like for some of the smaller sites, like the challenges that they have around uh, liquidity with regards to action, you know, players, because if these, you know, drafts don't fail in a five to 10 minute period, then people leave and they may not come back and it's a poor user experience. So trying to think like, hey, I'm all about more competition, more options for consumers. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that some of these other sites um, are able to continue to innovate and find ways to you know, move the needle on DFS, find ways to bring in whether it's a new niche, whether it's a new style, a new format, whatever that is. Um, and then I think from a more even forward looking two, three, five years is how do we make sure that this, you know, as I mentioned, it stays fun um, because with the DFS, like, I don't know, some of the reasons why people have stopped playing is around, um, you know, you're playing against solvers, you're playing against people that are using, you know, the heavy simulations, algorithms, all of that. Uh, and then when you have, you know, a lot of content sites are putting out like the projections, you basically are all coming to the same lineups. With best ball, because each individual draft is so dynamic, you don't have a lot of those aspects. But I do feel potential concern around, hey, in that next three-year period, will there be forms of automation so that people try to actually start using bots in these? And uh, you know, I've talked to some of the uh, leads at some of these companies, and I do think it's important and it's on their radar that, hey, how do we protect against and you know make sure that this does remain a fun atmosphere, uh, fair to everyone. Um, I think that's kind of where from a larger industry is top of my mind as we approach the next few years of best ball. And that's a definite, that's a, a different perspective than I think a lot of people have as a user um, that you and I kind of have a, a similarity in because we have, we have both built games like this. You know, we have both seen the other side and the development and the, you know, know the laws and <laughs> everything that goes into that. And it's a very fine line um, for the providers here because their contests per the law have to be guaranteed. So if they're not, if, obviously, if they're not filling those contests, if their user experience isn't what they need it to be and they're not retracting or, or attracting repeat customers, that's obviously going to affect their bottom line and, and affect longevity because if they're if they're fronting money for these contests that aren't filling, um, that's a definite problem. So yeah, that's an interesting perspective that I think is not brought up a lot um, around this industry is is kind of getting a peek behind the curtain at the, you know, outside of just the user um, and the player's experience. Um, the other thing that you mentioned there, uh, which I want to talk about real quick, is the likely, I would call it the likely introduction of solvers. You know, we start talking about a game that has $2 million up top, uh, a $10 million prize pool. That's going to start raising some some hairs on the back of people's necks, of, you know, putting in work to try to approach a, a solver mentality or a, a supercomputer coming in and, and weighing uh, picks versus correlations what I find so interesting about that discussion is the 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 fact uh, the, of the matter is the game of best ball just intrinsically has so much variance associated with it. Um, the basically a borderline 
in infinite combinations. You know, we, we talk about theoretics and, and game theory and uh, combinatorial games and non-sequential games and these these different aspects of like what describes best ball innately there's just it's it's gonna take some computational power right to to build a solver out and weigh like what does what does 15 spots past adp mean versus a correlated week 17 stack or or a correlation so that that discussion is very interesting um in the sense that i don't know if if we'll have something like that in the next three years, the next five years, but I, I would assume based on, you know, just how big best ball is becoming that that is probably on the horizon at some point. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's tough. Um, I think this space just has so much opportunity. And I mean, like what you were talking about where, Hey, as you get these larger prize pools, you're bringing more people into this space. Um, I, I want to like, you know, think of how we can protect this, how we can keep that fun aspect. But when you mention how like, Hey, this is so dynamic. It's so unique. It's probably the hardest thing, but like they were saying that about chess, they were saying that about that, you know, and you're not going to be able to beat the grandmasters in chess. And very quickly AI did that. Then it was, well, you'd never be able to do it with heads up, not heads up, but uh, no limit hold on poker because there's Mm -hmm. so much optionality. There's so much customization, like limit. Okay. But not no limit. But then once again, AI ended up being able to beat that. So I'm never going to bet against technology. I think the question becomes, what are we able to do with it, you know, in a time frame aspect? Um, and then what are sites able to do to defend against it? Because I think in the short term, uh, there will likely be in the next, I'd say, two years, the you know, a bot that can draft that is able to click your draft picks similar to the bots that already do sports betting and can click on the uh, bets in near real time when they're posted. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it will likely use some form of logic around your own rankings, around correlation, around game stacks, around maybe it's week 17 correlation. It maybe is trained off of simulations. Like all of that is possible. I want to still believe that in the short term, like me and an individual draft can still outsmart that computer, that bot. For a short period of time, that's probably true. But even if that is true, and eventually, you know, it becomes not the case, but for that period of time that it is, well, in a 12-man draft, like I may have an edge, but that bot is able to do substantially more volume. And then what about when we talk about the other niche kind of best ball where it's a three-man or a six-man? If mm-hmm. you have a bot that's being able to enter nonstop these three-mans or these six-mans and auto-drafting in a very smart way, well, even if that doesn't have the greatest edge or even if it does the experience from a user experience is horrible. Like, no, you don't want to go against this one, even if it is that that bot, um, even if you do think you have the edge and such, like it's just not the great experience. And so I think it's just important for these sites to start thinking about a technologically, do they have the ability to actually police against bots as we go forward? And two, if they do, how do they make sure, like, what are the, what are the rules against it? Because what we've seen over the past couple months was augmentation. We've seen a lot of these heads up displays. We've seen a lot of uh, analytics that are basically, hey, taking uh, analysis from the past two years of data. Um, and you know, we have that retrospective analysis. But now we're also saying, okay, well, let's take advantage of using a heads up display that shows you what your exposure is, what your average ADP is, where there might be a week 17 game stack. And those are things that I actually really enjoy. 
because mm-hmm. I don't think you're getting any form of a more competitive edge over others. If anything, you're actually democratizing this information because me, power user, already memorized week 17. You, Joe Casual, it's only doing 10 drafts. You can load one up and you can see who those week 17 is. And so I think like in that sense, there's more information is helpful as long as these tools remain widely available to everyone. The automation angle is that's going to likely be highly concentrated by individual users. And that's where I think it really hurts the overall experience. Yeah. And if you liken the augmentation discussion to kind of what we're seeing in the poker landscape, and obviously what we're talking about is game theory optimal, where every every move has a percentage output based on previous actions and, and yada, yada, without going too far into that rabbit hole. That's basically what we're talking about with game theory optimal. It's, a, it's an optimization tool, assuming you're playing against other players that are also playing optimal theory. When we talk about the augmentation stuff for best ball, and if you liken that to that kind of that GTO poker discussion, when you look at online poker, there's all kinds of HUDs and, and tools that give you a player's continuation rate. They give you a pay, like everything from like a three bet fold rate to obviously all the way down through Fifth Street uh, or the river. And you are able to, in real time, view a player's statistics that you're playing against. Do you see that coming into the fold uh, a little bit heavier in the future in best ball where you're able to, you know, because we're limited in scope to seeing 11 other players at a time, do you think we're able to, you know, view their statistics in real time their you know their their quarterback one drafting you know their range of like quarterback one drafting um certain data that can be gleaned from that do you think we're going to be able to see that here shortly as well yeah i mean i think that's really interesting where the data from previous years is already there so theoretically let's say you were doing a slow draft where you had eight hours and you were sitting next to ron jones and you were like, hey, I can see Ron Jones's 150 teams that he did in the BBM2 last year. And most frequently, he went with a 4RB or a 5RB build, or he always waited on QB and went for the 3QB build. Like yeah. Theoretically, that data is already available. Is it now possible for a you know computer program to draw that up so that you can in real time see on a per player basis, you click on that player's name and now you can start seeing what their most common builds are, who are their most common players drafted. Now for this year, you know, unless it was taking the lines that you played against them, but that's a really small sample size, like you wouldn't really have that. Mm -hmm. Um, But for previous years you could. And uh, is that a good thing? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, again, I think the more that like what happens to poker happens here, it ends up drawing away and taking out that fun aspect. And yeah. uh, maybe the HUDs of right now are like, even though I'm okay with it now, and I think like it's actually helpful, is it a step towards this future hyper augmentation slash automation? Maybe. Um, but I don't know. I, and, and I don't know. I guess... For me as personal, it's just because I'm devoting so much of my time to best ball. I feel like I have some, I don't know, um, responsibility with this larger place, like kind of a voice in the space. And so I do want these at least topics to be discussed um, and, you know, by the right, by the right people, the people who are kind of you know, leading these best ball companies. Um, I don't have the answers, but I, I'm at least hopeful that this discussion is being held. 
Yeah. And that's, uh, I love that perspective because when, again, when you liken it to poker, what we saw is probably five, six years ago is when GTO really started coming out. And then we started seeing the HUDs online for, you know, online play. And it wasn't until this year that like a committee devoted to the integrity of the game was stood up. So you talk about like a five, six year window of unregulated, I guess you could call it edges uh, in the game and start projecting that, you know, could that happen to best ball? That's something that, that should be being talked about that I, I haven't heard anybody outside yourself bring up yet. So that's super interesting. Um, and I think it's, it's a good thing to be having those discussions now. No, completely agree. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, it's better to have the discussion before it happens um, than reactive and trying to on the fly um, correct. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. We appreciate that perspective of of kind of what best ball means now and and where we're headed to the future. I want to now transition this discussion into a little bit more of a present day best ball landscape and and drafting and and theory and techniques and stuff like that. And one of the things, you know, talking to you before jumping on here, one of the things that that you wanted to discuss was this idea of handcuffs, uh, particularly at the running back position and the certain archetypes that go along with that. I'm going to basically throw it over to you. And I want to hear a little bit about what you're thinking when you're when you're targeting a running back handcuff in best ball. Yeah, I think it's interesting because. You know, historically over the past couple of years, the you know general sharp take was that handcuffs are bad for best ball because we want to draft like we're right. And when we're right, that means that our first running back on a team that we draft is most likely to have a really good year. And in those situations, that means the handcuff probably did not have a good year. And so if we're draft like we're right, we shouldn't be drafting uh, those handcuffs. And that was, you know, just kind of the, ex- the accepted answer of, hey, this is the sharp play. Uh, this year, when the field came out for that week 17 and it was 469, and then even what the $5 one on DraftKings is like 900 and some, yeah. like it's insane. And so I started just trying to think through like, how can we get unique for that week 17? And uh, probably I was a little um, biased based off my lineup that, you know, won the BBM that year where it was the only one with Alvin Kamara. I was very fortunate. Um, now I didn't do anything ahead of the draft to get a unique Alvin Kamara. I just got lucky that the rest of my team was able to survive his kind of meh weeks in the playoffs. And then I got that week seven, that week 16 for that year. Um, but going into a year, how can we possibly build to be unique? And so like, yeah, one of them is you draft Matt Brader, Rex Burkhead, or Samaj P. Ryan, someone who no one else is drafting. So if they have that huge year, you're actually getting a player that's not having been drafted on many teams. Like, you know, in the past, that was Cordell Patterson, James Robinson, Elijah Mitchell, so forth. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I started thinking about the handcuffs. And yes, these are low probability situations, but we're still thinking about what's a way to get unique. And so... One of the examples might be Dalvin Cook and Alexander Madison. Now, Dalvin Cook is a late first rounder. And so if you're drafting Alexander Madison, his only path to success is if Alexander is if Dalvin Cook gets hurt. So historically, we don't want to draft Alexander Madison. But my thought process was, okay, let's say that Dalvin Cook actually has a huge year and uh, ends up as the RB1. His advance rate is something like 40, 45%. Um, he was the guy that you needed to really make the playoffs. 
You get to the playoffs. He has another strong two weeks, but maybe in that week 16, fourth quarter, he ends up having an injury or it shows up in the practice the week after. Now, because we've already said common sense or not common sense, but sharp play is if you have Dalvin, you don't draft Madison. And we know that the majority of the teams uh, that advanced had Dalvin or whatever that advance rate was. So Madison now fills into the Dalvin role, becomes a unique play, and very, very, very few teams have him because majority of the teams, well, not only did the advance rate 45% from the regular season, but then each week of the playoffs, Dalvin had those two big games. So people, ton of teams have him. He's in the teams that draft. We're now at week 17 and Dalvin's not playing. You now have the opportunity to have that Alexander Madison and if we're not drafting Alexander Madison and Dalvin together, then there are going to be very few teams that actually have that. And so that was the general theory here is like, hey, I've told myself a story, the narrative. I was talking to Michael Leone, a uh, colleague had established the run around this. And he's like, okay, that's interesting. Um, I'm not sure if I buy it because I think it might hurt your advance rate too much. And he dug into the data and he started seeing that, well, handcuffs actually don't hurt you that much. And then he started seeing that there's actually ways to optimize it. And so as he looked in the data, he was like, the best scenarios are actually the ones where there's an ambiguous backfield and you should just draft them both. So last year, that would have been draft both James Conner, Chase Edmonds, draft both uh, Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones. And yeah, Rojo was a complete bust. Yes, like um, Chase Edmonds didn't do much, but those teams that win and drafted them both actually had a substantially high win rate. And the teams that only drafted the correct one, their advance rate wasn't much different. So it made sense to say, hey, let me just take a chance and bet on both of these um, to really get that, to get that edge. So now when his data is showing that, hey, handcuffing doesn't actually hurt your advance rate. And then you throw on the narrative that I'm talking about with the I call it the ping pong effect with the injuries and such for the playoffs. That now has become a strategy that I'm trying to employ more often now with, again, not hurting my advance rate, but with the substantial upside. If the craziness happened, that I have a crazy unique player in week seven, a crazy high upside unique player in week 17. That's very interesting that you brought up. And that's something that I theorized very early in this draft season as well. And it shifted my kind of mentality for the term handcuff in the sense that I moved away from like just targeting specific player names or even like situations as opposed to now viewing it through the lens of a team mentality because of the fact that there are certain teams where them to utilize, you know, a... I don't want to use the word, the term workhorse, but a, a primary running back, regardless of kind of who is in that role. So that leaves us with a, a more narrowed scope of these teams where we should be targeting the handcuff or the primary plus the handcuff on individual rosters. Uh, you know, you know, throwing out quick examples for me, that would be uh, Chase Edmonds and Matt Breida this year. That would be Rashad Penny and Kenneth Walker this year. That would be um, even Cam Akers and Daryl Henderson this year. Um, these teams where we can expect one running back, you know, regardless of names, of being the primary back. And it gives you a little bit, you know, one, we have to make sure, I think what that does is it, it satiates the idea of making sure that the 
the dip in EV is made up for at least by the leverage that you're creating, which is an interesting concept. And it's entirely rooted in theory in the sense that we know it might be a small hit to EV, or we know it might be suboptimal to draft two running backs from the same team on a best ball roster where we're limited in the amount of roster spots that we have. But if absolutely 0% of the field is doing it, that is innately going to generate a bit of leverage. And picking out the teams where that amount of leverage generated offsets or even is more than the small dip in the loss of EV, those are the situations that we want to be targeting. Yeah, uh, I think that makes complete sense. And I think the two things I'd highlight from what you're touching on with regards to betting on the teams is one is you're betting on a team and what they're going to do. And I think the Eagles are a great example where we don't know whether they're going to play this year like they started the first six weeks of last season and trying to be very pass heavy. Or we don't know if they're going to play like they finished the you know second half of the season as being very run heavy. But you've got to make bets on one of those two. And so if they end up being very run heavy, there's a decent chance that both Miles Sanders and Kenneth Gainwell, Gainwell surpass their ADP. So one is just what is the kind of how does that team win? When that team finishes in their top five upside scenarios, top five, you know, whatever, uh, how do they get there? And so if you make the bet on running, it makes sense to draft both those. And the second is what I thought was interesting that you're talking about is kind of like, what is the team's proclivity to have a workhorse or to have a three down back? Because there's actually relatively few staffs that, you know, in today's football that are comfortable with just getting that one running back. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times, it also is, even though they're comfortable with Jonathan Taylor as their RB1, they may not be comfortable as only as having only Naheem Hines as your backup. I mean, like if, you know, Jonathan Taylor goes down, maybe they have a bit of a, uh, you know, shared split. But then mm-hmm. you have like a Pittsburgh historically where it doesn't matter who their number one is. If the person's hurt, they're just, hey, next up is still getting that same volume. And uh that's where, like, yeah, Cincinnati is probably one of the most interesting ones. Yeah. We know that the value in that offense from a running back is the touchdowns. Um, and like, that's why Joe Mixon's being drafted where he is. It's not because he's barely going to be on the field on third down. He'll get some early down pass work, but not that much. But his values is the touchdowns. If he goes down, uh, are they going to have just some AJP run like he's had before? Do you have the high more... Uh, you know, higher spark score in Chris Evans playing. Like, I don't know, but those are the bets that you should be making. And in a week 18 with, you know, uniqueness aspect, like it's something that you are, should probably take some chances on. And Samaji Pirine is a, is a player that I was not targeting very heavily uh, at the beginning of this draft window, but I've come around to, and he's still living in the last rounds of drafts, the 18th round in, on underdog or the 20th round on DraftKings, or, you know, however, whatever platform you're playing on. He's still in the last round. Uh, And he's a guy who we have continued to get the same narrative from Cincinnati in the sense that he is the direct backup to Joe Mixon. And we saw it in preseason. We saw it in minicamp. We saw it in the first preseason game where he was inactive. Uh, So it's a very interesting, like something one, either the field is wrong or he's not being drafted where he should be. And so those are the kind of bets. And I, I call those bets disproportionate upside. Those are the types of stabs and situations I want to be monitoring. And I want to be trying, you know, looking to leverage and take advantage of um, where 
it's it's a case of you know we can uh, we can liken it to a quarterback and his pass catchers if you know three of a quarterback's pass catchers are being drafted before that quarterback and he is sitting in the 10th 11th round well one of those parties is priced incorrectly is it the pass catchers is it the quarterback I don't know. Take a stand on individual rosters on one of those being the case, and you can generate some nice little leverage there. So it's 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 kind of the same idea with this idea of handcuffs, in the sense that like we know that ADP is not a perfect, it's not hundred percent right. We know that it is this fluid and dynamic, ambiguous blob, right? Really, where it's this snapshot of two days worth of drafts that is generating this ADP to be some error there's going to be obviously a, a heap of recency bias in the field there's going to be human psychology that goes into that all this stuff but those are the situations where i'm looking to take a stand and leverage and the interesting thing that i think that you brought out with respect to uh particularly the philadelphia eagles is you don't even have to like take a binary stance on that team and say like I think they're going to look like the first six weeks last year, or I think they're going to look like the second half of last year. What you need to do is realize that you need to take those stands on individual rosters. And then you can balance that exposure across your entire portfolio and not have to take a binary stance and still give yourself exposure to both of those valid outcomes, which is uh, something I don't think a lot of the field is doing right now. Yeah, no, I think that makes complete sense. And uh, the Samaj P. Ryan, um, so I've also similarly been on it a little um, early on in the off season, I was on a pod with Josh Norris from underdog and, uh, you know, he's a football guy. Uh, he's, you know, best ever. I said it, Josh ever, uh, <laughs> the NFL draft. Um, and so he's been touting up Chris Evans because he sees the fantastic talent that is Chris Evans. He sees how elusive he is, how quick he is in open space. And uh, that has gotten people to draft Chris Evans and probably, I want to say, 80, 90% of drafts. Uh, he had an ADP that started up getting into like the 190s, hung around like 200. Um, for me, as more of the kind of game theory, best ball kind of construction guy, I'm thinking, okay, I get that Chris Evans looks great. And like maybe Chris Evans 60 40 is going to be the backup or has the better chance of having a, you know, a, an elite season. Um, but Samaj P. Ryan's being drafted in less than 5% of drafts. And mm-hmm. so from a pure uniqueness standpoint, I'm willing to take the player that is less likely to break out, even if, you know, because I think it is still semi-close. But if Samaj P. Ryan does break out, those teams that I have him on are having such a better shape than if I drafted Chris Evans and he breaks out. Well, yeah, I'm likely going to win my league, but when I advance to the next round of the playoffs, everyone's going to have him. So have I really gained that much of an edge? Yeah, exactly. And if you think about like the constructs of these contests, the top 180 to 190 players in ADP are getting taken every single draft. Example of Samaj P. Ryan who's going undrafted in 95% of drafts. Well, like that is a heap of leverage and it's, it's betting on this ambiguous situation, something that couldn't even, you know, might not even transpire. You know, we don't know Joe Mixon's going to get hurt, but what we do know is it's a high value role, right? So uh, definite interesting theoretical discussion there. Uh, and I dig it. You have anything? Uh, oh, by the ways to, to kind of close that thought process. No, I think that sounds great. And uh, I guess the one close I'll be is, at the end of the season, 
there is a high likelihood that we still won't know whether or not this result worked. We'll have yeah. more data to be able to say like, hey, A, how many people actually started drafting handcuffs? Like, did that increase in the previous year? Uh, did your advance rates suffer or increase or stay the same based off it? Like, there's enough data around those to have a decent idea. Uh, what we won't know is with any level of certainty is, hey, did it actually play out for the playoffs with these theories? And so that's just one thing to keep in mind is data is reactive. It can be helpful to inform our future decisions, but most of all, it explains what happened in the past. It's not always a predictor of the future. Um, and so with this, like, just I guess I'm getting ahead of, uh, you know, hey, we're not going to know. So next year, we're going to be in the same boat. We'll have more information to hopefully make more informed decision, but we're still not going to have certainty on whether it worked or not. Yeah, I love that. And uh, it's, it should sound very familiar to listeners because about uh, about a month ago, we actually had Liam Murphy on this podcast and we talked about that feedback loop and how we, you know, we have one, we have one slate in best ball per year. You, you liken that to best ball where, you know, you get feedback every week. You get to to tweak your your thoughts and your theories and 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 get immediate feedback and and get increased exposure to data. And now in best ball, like it's going to take decades for this to kind of all hash out. And so we are very very young in the infancy of this game, where I think it it makes a lot of sense to be pushing ourselves from a theoretical sense. Uh, so I love that um, exploration. Yeah, I think um, one of my favorite examples real quick, I'll go through that kind of helps depict this is the data last year showed that four tight end builds on underdog had an extremely high advance rate. And you see that and you're like, oh, snap. So should I just like start drafting four tight ends this year because it worked last year? And I guess that's one thing you could do, but rather I think it is, okay, let's look into that data. Well, first, you look at the four tight end builds, and almost all those were people who drafted four tight ends at the end of drafts. That makes mm-hmm. sense because they didn't get a, you know, a good one that they liked, so they drafted a bunch. Okay. Now, of those four tight end builds, the ones that advanced were the ones that had Gronk, Dawson Knox, Dalton Schultz, all late tight ends. And so if you had four dart throws, you were more likely to hit on one of those three tight ends and advance. Okay. So now we're like, okay, so the four tight ends gives us more dart throws. The dart throws gives us an opportunity to hit people like those three. But I think the real actual piece is you look at the tight ends that are on those, you know, those three tight ends and what's the commonality among them? Well, they play for Buffalo, Dallas, and Tampa, three of the highest passing, most efficient teams last year. And so maybe that's where the actionable insight is from the initial four tight end data point. It's not so much that we should draft four tight ends, but it's when we're drafting late tight ends, we should be looking for the ones on the high passing, highly efficient teams where that person can have a substantial role. And so when you look at this, like maybe Hayden Hurst is that person where, you know, we're not that excited about Hayden Hurst, but like you weren't that excited about Dalton Schultz or Dawson Knox either. But on those teams, they we know they're explosive. We know they're high-powered in passing. We know they're efficient. Maybe Hayden Hurst can have an increased role in that offense and find his way into being a top 10 tight end. It doesn't feel likely, but those are the kind of the archetypes based off what we learned. So now, bringing it all together, when I see that there was a four tight end build that was highly successful in advance rates last year... I don't immediately just assume I should draft four, but you dig into that data to figure out, okay, what can we actually inform our future decisions? 
Yeah, that's uh, that, I love that because context hashtag matters. <laughs> uh, I love that. You know, guys, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned Hayden Hurst. Other guys, Gerald Everett. Like, no one's overly excited about him, but plays for the Chargers. Um, Alberto, the, all these names that are going in the back half of drafts that that provide that same archetype and that profile. So I love that discussion as well. Um, let's transition now to this idea of range of outcomes. Um, and we talk about best ball where we don't have access to roster manipulation. We don't have access to roster augmentation through waivers. Um, a little bit more emphasis goes into this idea of range of outcomes as opposed to projections or rankings or, or which are more median outcome based. Um, because we also, we are, we have to factor in, um, this idea of spike weeks and, and the computer setting our lineup for us. So talk to me real quick about kind of how you're managing that through when you're drafting through this lens of this idea of range of outcomes. Yeah. So I've been asked, like, what do I think my greatest edge is for best ball right now? And I like historically, like roster construction is important, but you know, a lot of these things and like stacks and all, but all that become table stakes. And so I think one of the things where I still think or believe I have an edge is that I'm willing to lean into uncertainty. I'm willing to uh, find places where there is a wide range of outcomes that, yes, can be very bad, but also can provide me with that upside. And uh, so earlier on the offseason, like Julio Jones was a great example where his range of outcomes was he's not playing a single game of football this year, or he goes and he joins Tom Brady and has a wide receiver two season. And so... At his price in drafts, I was willing to draft that because I was playing for that upside. Now I was also drafting Will Fuller. <laughs> yeah. wanna, you know, book hasn't been closed yet, but that could end up being that we don't see a single game out of this year. But in that range of outcomes, I'm still happy with hey, I took 17th, 18th round picks on someone who's now going in about the 10th round and still has a range of outcomes that he could end up being a you know fifth, sixth round value at the end of the year. For me. Wide receivers, I think, are probably the largest opportunities here, especially rookies. And uh, with rookies, like let's compare a Marvin Jones or pre, you know, early in the offseason, it was George Pickens. Both of those were getting drafted around 175, 180. Marvin Jones, we've seen enough of him that we know that, like, hey, his range of outcomes is this to this. It's not that wide. Yes, maybe the Jacksonville offense is a little stronger. Trevor, I know Trevor Lawrence has a a step up, new coaching staff and all that. So that's how we're thinking of what his range of outcomes are for the upside. Uh, but then you take a rookie, rookie like George Pickens, who slipped the second round because of potential, you know, injury issues on Pittsburgh, or we're not even sure what the quarterback situation is. We've never seen George Pickens play in an NFL down. His range of outcomes is so wide. He could literally not be a starter or see the field much, or he could be a complete alpha and have an amazing season. And so in best ball, I'm willing to, and I actually look to lean into uncertainty where I can potentially find these high outcome situations. And George Pickens, like it's only been one preseason game, but the reports are great. And we're already seeing him get steamed up to like ADP 130. Um, And these are the kind of the situations that I'm looking for where, hey, where can I hit that highest upside? And yes, you need to take into a factor because the the formula really is, is what is the upside and then what's the likelihood of hitting it? The mm-hmm. likelihood of hitting it is probably, honestly, we're more inaccurate at predicting um, where 
the seeing the upside, we can compare it to other players. So we have a better idea of what that could be. Um, but that's where I'd say um, my mindset is around range of optimism on drafting. Yeah, the way the way that I think uh, is easiest to visualize that is like take Almond Ross St. Brown from last year, who was was going in the 16th, 17th, 18th round all draft season, and then he was a had to have it piece uh, over the second half of the year because the NFL is inherently a variant sport. We have everything from injuries to to you know coaching staff changes to all this all this changing dynamics of the game itself that lead best ball to being this highly variant game. You know, who knew that Baltimore Ravens were going to have three running backs offensive line injuries and they were going to have secondary and linebacker injuries and then they were going to pass 10 times more per game last year compared to 2020. Like those are things that you just cannot predict. However, we can take those lessons learned and carry them forward into this idea of embracing leverage that you're talking about. The way that I've described this idea uh, in the past is, you know, when the draft window opened for BBM, we had guys like Kareem Hunt and Chase Edmonds and Rashad Penny going in the 11th, 12th rounds of drafts because they were part of these um, ambiguous backfields that nobody new, you know, people like to, to, we crave the stability, the known, we like to think that we have control over things. And in this game of best ball, like one of the biggest things that you can do, uh, to increase your EV is just relinquish that, that want for control. You know, when this draft window opened, I was specifically targeting zero running back builds with those, you know, those three aforementioned running backs as like my RB one, two, and three and whatever, because I knew that like embracing that ambiguity or or those unknowns could lead to teams that could not be built over the rest of the you know the rest of the entire the draft window. Same thing with rookie running backs and we see this every single year where you know draft start draft season kicks off rookie running or rookie wide receivers are like pushed way down uh in ADP and then they slowly start to trickle up as we start getting more knowns uh across the field. We saw it with Amon Ross St. Brown last year where he started in the, you know, undrafted range and he bumped up to around 16 and then, you know, into rounds 13 and 14. But this idea of like embracing those unknowns and leaning into the this idea of variance in a highly variant game before the field is doing it is going to generate yourself a good deal of leverage. Uh, so I love that you uh, that you covered that. Um, any, oh, by the ways or, or closing thoughts on this idea of range of outcomes? No, I love that. I think that sounds great. All right. We are going to take a quick look. Um, I want to try and keep this to an hour. I think uh, that's our kind of sweet spot here. But we're going to take a quick look at this idea of ADP, the fluidity of ADP and the dynamic nature of ADP, and then kind of bounce that idea off of something we just talked about in this idea of range of outcomes. So I want to ask you, knowing that ADP is generated via this, you know, 48 hour snapshot in time. That's why we see all these massive movers, these 18th, 20th round guys that jump up into the eighth, ninth, 10th rounds. Um, a lot of the times we see this with camp preseason injuries at the running back position, but we're starting to get to the range where we're starting to get a better idea of how depth charts are going to be breaking out, how players who they're playing with, they're practicing with the ones, they're practicing with the twos. So we're starting to get more of this idea of the common knowledge pieces that the entire field is getting exposed to. 
that being known, we're going to have some movers that are going to jump uh, high or a, a ton of rounds. And we're going to have some uh, kind of trickle down effect of fallers in ADP that are going to start presenting themselves. How are you handling these massive movers, these guys who are jumping multiple rounds, these guys who are falling multiple rounds as we start getting into the latter portion of the draft season? Yeah, so you definitely need to take it on a case-by-case basis. Uh, In general, I will say, if it is someone who is moving up substantially, um, I'm unlikely to draft them in these larger tournaments because if I am right that that player does hit, um, there are others who, you know, I'm basically, you know, the best case scenario is that team advances because that player did really well, but there are a whole bunch of other teams that also advance and have stronger uh, you know, have stronger complementary players because of where they drafted that player. Mm-hmm. Now, the difference between if that player was drafted in the 16th round versus 13th, like that's not as big of a deal. Um, we haven't seen the major, major injury yet. That is the Daryl Henderson, Cam Akers situation from last year, where like it's someone moving from a 13th to like a fourth. Mm-hmm. That's the complete, like, complete no no. Um, but I'd say there are some interesting cases where, like, as I mentioned, you got to take case by case because Isaiah Pacheco is an example where he's getting steamed up to like, I don't know, ADP 140 or so, maybe one, maybe in the 40s. I'm okay with taking him because, yes, there are some people who are drafting him in the 18th, 17th for a week or two, and you're giving up value on him. But we're what, 55% of the way through the underdog, that much full? Um, I think 50% of teams that are already completed, no one drafted Isaiah Pacheco. So even though you're giving up a small amount of value to a small amount of teams that were drafting him in 17th, 18th, you're still picking up uniqueness against 50% of the field. So that's a specific example where like I've actually this past couple of days been drafting a bunch of Pacheco, accepting that I'm okay with reaching on him a bit because I don't actually care that much about his current ADP because I see him, the value I'm getting for him is that uniqueness across the entire field. I like that. I want to ask you a question also, because I'm going to liken it to, or I guess the example I'm going to use are uh, the wide receivers that we see these larger jumps with. Um, we've seen it already with Isaiah McKenzie, where he was an undrafted guy at the beginning. Then he moved to like a 17th, 18th round guy. Now he's jumped up to, you know, a, a 13th, 14th round and still climbing. Um, there's other guys that are kind of still sitting in that undrafted range that offer similar profiles in the sense, you know, talking about the archetype of what we're kind of targeting there, these guys on good offenses who are expected to be, uh, or could be even, uh, a major portion of the offensive game plan, guys like Devin Duvernay, guys like Cedric Wilson, you know, guys that are not being as heralded as much, but could be stepping into, major role changes based on their career performances. Uh, are these guys that you're targeting heavily at the beginning? Are they guys that you'll be chasing up? Are you still drafting Isaiah McKenzie? What are your thoughts on those uh, particular instances? Yeah. I mean, if it was someone who was drafting the 17th and I have to take him in the 14th and like I'm doing it with a stack partner, I'm fine with it. I don't think it's that much of a difference. Um, for me, honestly, in round 16, 17, 18 of underdog, I'm usually trying to start looking for even unique guys that maybe aren't being drafted, especially in that 17th and 18th with running backs. So if uh, you know other people were drafting McKenzie in the 17th and now I have to draft him in the 14th, like I don't think I'm losing that much value. Um, 
look at, but the thing is, I still need to be a believer in that player. The other side of things, like, okay, the Julio, I mean, he was routinely getting drafted in every draft in the 18th. So he still has a high ownership. Now you have to take him in like the 10th round or so. Like, that's a substantial where, hey, I think I have around 12% of Julio. I was a little over the field on him. And my average ADP of him is 193. So I'm done with that. I'm not drafting any. But earlier today, I had a Brady team and I drafted Russell Gage because I got Russell Gage at pick like 100 and I don't know, 15. I'm getting value on the other teams that were drafting Russell Gage in the sixth, seventh, eighth, and such. And so there is an example where, like, no, Russell Gage's uh, upside isn't as high as what, you know, likelihood of hitting his upside is not as high as when people were drafting him crazily earlier. But I'm now getting that game theory aspect as if he does hit this crazy outcome and he's that, you know, high advance rate player, um, maybe, you know, Godwin's slower to recover. Maybe Evans has a hamstring injury. Maybe Gage becomes the number one guy. Well, now when we advance, I have that strong advantage of all these other teams that were drafting him in the sixth, seventh and still advanced. Yeah. And again, that's that, that idea of the archetype, the team he plays for and his athletic profile and his expected increase or his potential increase in, you know, the, the way that he is being utilized, his utilization. Um, and that's something that we don't know now. All we know is he was being drafted around pick 70 for six weeks. And now you're getting him, you know, at a 50% increase in ADP, which is a fairly massive, you know, bump in ADP. Uh, or jump uh, it down in ADP um, to where, because there are different metrics of measuring how good of a best ball pick you made because historically the game of best ball, we've measured it via advance rates. However, now with these top heavy contests and with all the money being in the playoffs and you having to advance week 15, week 16, and then to play in week 17, like I'll, I'll, I'll use the example of, um, Gabriel Davis last year, probably to the masses, he was thought of as this bust in per ADP because his advance rate was rather low. However, if you look at his week 16 ownership last year, he was extremely heavily owned because he put up 24 or whatever points in week 15 and gave people with him a, a massive advantage of, you know, having this 14th rounder who put up 24 points and helped everyone advance from week 15. So it's a, it's an interesting discussion because I don't think the discussion on the value of a best ball pick is linear because the contest is not linear. It's, and and we're talking about the payout payouts here. The contest is not linear. It's logarithmic. All the money is at the top and you need to think about, you know, the path to the top there. And so while you know, 80, 90% of people probably consider Gabe Davis a bust at ADP last year. He was probably one of the more valuable pieces because he got a bunch of teams through week 15. Yeah, he's such an interesting case where if you knew at the beginning of the year that hey, he was going to do this, you're still drafting him on every team. And even though, you know, he hurts your advance rate, but like how much does a week 15 can a week 15 not a week 15 a round 15 person honestly hurt your advance rate Mm -hmm. um it's got to be very very slim especially a wide receiver because usually you know you're drafting seven eight nine of them um but obviously his value came in those playoff weeks and 
there's an argument that if you can get a you know a player who actually hurts your advance rate into the playoffs, you actually have now more value um, because of that uniqueness. Yeah. And when you start talking about also the constructs of the contest that we're playing, two teams advance out of every draft. So from a theoretical sense, I would almost want like all of my teams that are advancing to be the second seed out of every draft, because that means I have further leverage and uniqueness as we get to the the rounds where it really matters, which is an interesting theoretical concept to really grasp. I've heard a couple people say that I think it's an interesting theoretical dis- theoretical discussion. I think I still want the highest points possible from the regular season because I think it still is determined around health. It's a predictor of future success. Um, but yes, no question that would have had Cooper Cup and Mark Andrews last year, which were high owned players. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting discussion. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But uh, for another for a pod for another day, <laughs> we'll have, might have to have you back and uh, and really dive into that. But I think we're gonna we're coming up on the hour mark, so I want to close this discussion with um, a look at kind of this idea of recency bias in field tendencies. And you know, we're only in iteration three of the BBM. You know, we had some exposure to these uh, big, you know, large field contest in years prior with draft, but then we had a little lull and now we're back into it for year three of underdog, which is really kind of the the market leader and and kind of where a lot of the money is is being sunk into. So when we look at when you shipped, you did it with this, we'll call it the hyper fragile build where, you know, taking four running backs in the first seven or eight rounds and then building up your stable of a higher variant position in wide receiver uh, with, you know, later picks. So then last year we saw hyper fragile, almost see a two times increase in total field usage. Last year we saw Liam Murphy ship with this emphasis on playoff correlations. Now it is all this year. It's all anyone is talking about and all anyone is covering really from a content provider standpoint. When we start thinking about these field tendencies and the recency bias associated with such a wide and long drawn out feedback loop. How are you looking to leverage those tendencies that you're seeing from the field this year? Um, and moving forward, what do you think is probably going to be like the buzz, the catchphrase, uh, content for next year? Yeah. I mean, I think you touch on the right idea that we can't just take, and this is similar to that, you know, four tight end thing a little, but we can't just take the data and what happened the previous year and say, Hey, let's do that this year and it's going to work. Um, and so, you know, two years ago, I don't remember the exact percent, but like a ton of my teams were the hyper fragile built and it was, the, mm-hmm. you know, four RBs before like the 10th or so round. And it made sense because that's also how other people were drafting and like RBs were being valued. So, you know, if you can grab those earlier on, otherwise you're forced to take like the, you know, the James White or, um, whoever we, you know, what we now think of as like a Daryl Henderson, Kenneth Gamewell type. And those guys were going in like the 10th, 11th rounds. Uh, last year, it shifted. People started going with a lot more wide receivers and people started going with a lot fewer running backs. So as you said, twice as much going with the hyper fragile. So what that do is those running backs that two years ago were getting drafted in the 10th, 11th round. Well, because fewer RBs were being drafted, they started moving to the 13th, 14th, even 15th rounds. 
So last year I adjusted and what I changed to is uh, I still really wanted those first elite two running backs. So I'd go heavy uh, on, you know, RB, RB or RB blank RB. And then what I would do is rather than doing four RBs, I would say, I'm going to take three RBs late now because in the 14th, 15th, 13th, 14th, 15th, I can grab running backs that are substantial values that historically have been going a few rounds before. And I can now load up on those other positions and not forego the wide receivers, the elite QBs, the elite tight ends and such. And so that was the bit of the shift. The other is, yeah, last year uh, was when the first time that I know, two years ago, 50 person field correlation for that final championship didn't matter too much. Last year, we saw things grow. So that is when we started actually, you know, the content wasn't really out there, but it was definitely a core part of my strategy. And so my team that ended up on the DraftKings side of things uh, was sitting up top for the million for most of the day and then lost in the, you know, in the last games, but still finished in fourth place. It was that Kansas City Cincinnati stack. And I think on the team, I had Burrow, I had Higgins, I had Chase, I had Tyreek Hill, and I had Daryl Henderson. Tyreek Hill and T. Higgins didn't even like clear 10 points. Basically, we're duds. But Burrow, Chase, and Daryl Williams went absolutely off. And so like that Daryl Williams one, I think he put up around 26 points or so. Um, that was a, you know, last, basically a last round pick that the only reason I did it was, hey, here's that week 17 or whatever the week was, the correlation aspect. And so we did start seeing that trend because as the tournament sizes grew for this year, I still don't think it is. You've got to figure out what are you seeing in these drafts? How do you react to them? And I think the biggest I feel this year is there's just certain pockets of the draft that feel dead positionally. So make sure that when you get to those pockets, you aren't in a need to grab a certain position that's now become dead. And so one of the ways to do that is like for me with tight ends, I'm either going with an elite tight end, probably one of the top four, maybe five, you include Kittle, um, or I'm waiting all the way and I'm grabbing three later on. And so I don't want to be in a position where I'm feeling like I need to draft a tight end in that middle zone to get like two tight ends that are end up being Gasicki and Irv Smith. Like that's where you're really forcing it. And I think with some of the other position groups, you start seeing it as well. If you miss out on the running backs after the Michael Carter, Kenneth Gainwell, there's a major drop off. And in that situation, like if you feel like you are being forced to draft a running back as a reach, because you miss the right pocket of the draft where there's value at each position, uh, that's where I think you're kind of losing some edge. So for this year, that pocket drafting has been um, something that I've become more and more comfortable with as I'm doing more drafts and seeing where these nice pockets are. Yeah, and you said something very interesting that I've tried to highlight this year too, and that's this idea of correlated backup running backs. Uh, you mentioned uh, Daryl Williams last year. Well, if you're targeting a game stack or a correlation and you know, we just talked about all the variants associated with the NFL season. An easy way to gain leverage is to include the backup running back in that in that game stack or that overstack or that correlation uh, to kind of take advantage of a an avenue to a high output that the field is likely not um, paying much attention to. So I love that. Yeah. Week week seventeen, the opponent to your QB stack grabbing that backup running back. That's what worked last year. That feels like just a cheat code. Yep. I love it, man. That is just about going to do it for us. I want to give you some time to talk to listeners about where they can find you, what you've been into, what, uh, where they can look for your work. Uh, so take us out with that. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. No, I'm honestly, I think most active on Twitter, we're giving some takes, having discussion, or really trying to kind of continue further the uh, best ball strategy, as well as just the larger industry aspect. So Justin Herzig on Twitter, um, up until the end, up until the NFL season starts, I'm doing twice a week shows, which is live best ball streams on Establish the Run, uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays. So uh, you'll, you'll see the links on Twitter and such. And then for people who are interested into a new version, uh, kind of the next generation of fantasy football, I've been working on the Owners Club and uh, happy to talk about all of these things and more. If you ever are interested, shoot me a DM. Um, love to respond and kind of talk to people about all this stuff. That's awesome, man. Thank you again for coming on. This was a very informative and fun hour of best ball discussion. As always, you can find me on Twitter at HiloFF. Head on over to One Week Season. Get access to our entire range of best ball products for only $1 for this year introductory rate. And these podcasts will go live every Friday between 7 and 9 a.m. on all major content uh, podcast providers. And we will see you in those best ball streets. See ya.